Hello and welcome back to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today, as every week, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. And we're going to kick off, as normal, by talking about the market. This year, this week, we did actually record the anniversary, we went past the first anniversary of the low point of the market sell-off last year. And it's been quite a remarkable year, it has to be said. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's um, concentrate on what happened this week in the market, Simon. Well, again, as always, an absolutely fascinating week uh, for the market. In terms of the investment company sector, it probably will end up uh, about flat for the week and probably a little bit behind the UK market. So the UK market ended up half a percent for the week, and that was helped by uh, a decent day on Friday. The market ended up 1% on Friday alone. And certainly so far this year, obviously, we're nearing the end of the first quarter, but it's not been a bad quarter for the UK market in general, probably up about 4.5% at the moment. And that compares with return for the investment company sector that is probably about flat, to be honest. Uh, in terms of the sector average discount, it seems to be hovering between about 3.5% and 3 it touched a little bit wider than that at one stage. Uh, and certainly there does seem to be some volatility around. I mean, clearly there is plenty for investors to worry about. Lots of news about vaccine disputes, vaccine nationalism, perhaps a traffic blockage in the Suez Canal and the possible impact on global trade. And obviously the ongoing uh, nature of China and uh, US's relations uh, and Joe Biden uh, very much entering the debate this week. And it's fair to point out that after last year, when investment trusts in general in aggregate performed significantly better than the than the market, uh, there has been some reversal in that. That's not a total surprise. The factors that really drove the uh, investment trust sector to so well last year have not all persisted into the new year. So it's been a pretty flat quarter to start with, but not without its interest. So let's start by talking about corporate activity. And we're going to talk about those fees at BH Global. That's BHGG and BHGU. They're two share classes there, a dollar and sterling one. Uh, and I made a rash prediction last week that uh, something in the region of 80% of shareholders would support the proposal to increase the fee. But uh, how wrong was I, Sam? Well, a little bit wrong. You could have been wronger, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. So this week, the EGM was held for BH Global and proposals to change the management fee were approved by shareholders, but it actually was 66% of votes in favour. So 9 million shares were voted against, which, as you've noted, was, was higher than you and perhaps other people suspected might be the case. Um, the board of BH Global said they will engage with shareholders that voted against uh, the proposal and seek to address any issues raised. Um, the new management fee uh, will apply from the 1st of July. Uh, but the board had previously stated its intention to uh, facilitate an exit for those shareholders who do not wish to remain invested on the new fee basis. So um, there was talk of a 40% tender at a 2% discount to any of the less costs. Um, but of course, we've got the, the sister fund of BH Global, BH Macro. They're going to hold their general meeting to vote on, on similar uh, proposals, i.e. a fee raise or an increase in the fee on the 29th of March. I'm not sure if you're brave enough to make a prediction of that one, but one suspects that that might also uh, see quite a few shareholders vote against. 
At least I got the right side of the majority anyway. That's better than nothing, I suppose. And I think it's almost almost a rounding error, you know, in my terms. But you're quite right. I didn't do too well there. Well, I'm going to I'll stick with, um, I don't know, 70 percent next week and see how we go. But in any event, what appears to have happened is that a majority of the shareholders have decided to take the pain of a higher management fee, uh, reversing the general trend of the last few years, it has to be said. But of course, they will be on, uh, I think, under closer scrutiny from here on to make sure that the performance of the trust continues uh, as well as it's done in recent times. We'll find out about that next week uh, or after the EGM. Let's move on and talk about uh, a brief announcement from Octopus Renewables Infrastructure. That's O-R-I-T. Octopus, a well-known manager of VCTs, uh, the management company. What have they had to say this week? Uh, Well, the board of Octopus Renewables Infrastructure uh, just confirmed that in connection with the proposed acquisition of Octopus Renewables, i.e. their investment manager by the Octopus Energy Group, that there would be no change to their uh, investment team or the people involved in the investment company. So that was obviously good news and I think probably what one might have expected. And obviously there's been um, quite some media commentary in terms of Octopus Energy Group's move for Octopus Renewables and they're effectively sister companies. But it's it's often worth uh, just keeping an eye on these kind of acquisitions or mergers. I mean, they're not infrequent in terms of the investment company sector. Uh, Obviously, in recent times, we saw Merion acquired by Jupiter and obviously the merger a few years ago with Standard Life and Aberdeen Asset Management. But it can have implications uh, for investment teams, but not, it would appear, in this particular instance. Can you remind us what the logic or the rationale for doing this acquisition is? It's, as you say, between two closely associated entities. What's the uh, rationale for it? Does the fact that the media comment imply that there are some people who are not entirely happy about this? No, I don't think that's the case, actually. I mean, I think my understanding of the subject, I mean, the, the Octopus Group has a number of different companies within it, of which Octopus Energy is probably the most high profile at the moment. Uh, a relatively new company, um, I think it's already got a valuation of more than £2 billion. So as a private company, it's seen as a, a double uh, unicorn. Obviously, an energy supplier, uh, it has pursued quite a high profile. And I think it's just very ambitious, uh, and it sees the acquisition of Octopus Renewables as a way forward in terms of its business. Clearly, Octopus Renewables, not just through the investment company, but has been uh, successful and, and really proven uh, expertise in this area. And they obviously regard it as a natural fit for their business. I mean, clearly very ambitious in terms of where they want to take this to. I have to admit that they actually provide my gas and electricity. And I wonder, I suppose there is an issue around uh, the way that they manage and charge the fees between the two companies or two entities. But let's see what will happen. That's an interesting announcement. So we're going to move on to talk about fundraising. And there's been yet more fundraising this week. Three significant uh, fundraising exercises, at least. And we're going to start with uh, Chrysalis Investments, C-H-R-Y. Chrysalis, now owned by Jupiter. And they've been looking to raise uh, quite a substantial amount of money. What's been the result of that process? Well, it's been a very good result, particularly for Chrysalis. So they were looking to raise £240 million. And in the end, it came in at £300 million. So in other words, the initial fundraising target was increased. So they will be quite happy with that. And actually, it represents a bit of a jump on in terms of the size of Chrysalis Investments. It has been a successful investment company over a number of years. And I think we've discussed it before but to date, they'd raised 470 million. So this is quite a lump more 
they talk about having a pipeline of a billion pounds of potential acquisitions and investments. Uh, and they've been quite good at uh, follow on investments as well, which is obviously very important when you look at the private companies in their portfolio. But one interesting aspect of this is actually that it's worth saying that the, the shares were placed out at uh, 205p per share. Uh, but not too long after the announcement of the successful fundraise, uh, that we did see some share price weakness in the, the following day. So it dipped down to 194p before ending the week up at 199 spot 5p. So slightly unusual, not necessarily what you'd expect, but um, still a good result for Chrysalis Investments. You say it's slightly surprising. Do you think one could speculate about why that might be? Why would the uh, the share price dip after the announcement of the placing? As you say, normally we hear that it's, uh, it's pretty solid around that price or higher. Uh, I mean, there might be a number of reasons. Often when we look at fundraising, particularly in the renewable infrastructure side, and we've seen some of those fundraising, as you know, have been oversubscribed. And so after those particular events are closed, uh, we can see uh, a little bit of run as people are trying to build up their allocations through the secondary market. In other words, the share price invariably closes up. In this case, uh, it feels as if that additional fundraising effectively satisfied the appetite for shares out there. That's one explanation. Or possibly there was just a seller in the market who, who wanted to see the placing out of the way and then were happy to, to take some money off the table. I mean, as mentioned, it has been a very successful uh, investment company. It's had very strong returns over the last few years. So it's quite a possibility that people might want to just take a little bit of profit off the table. Yes, and it's probably worth reminding uh, listeners that Chrysalis is uh, one of these two investment trusts that are looking to invest in relatively new but large companies that are doing performing very well, but which are not yet listed through an IPO in the standard way. Uh, companies that are successful like that in the digital space especially are staying private for longer. And Merion, now owned by Jupiter, is trying to uh, tap, it has a network which allows it to tap into some of these very successful uh, companies ahead of their coming to the market. And that's uh, something which is also goes on with another investment trust, which I now pronounce as Shehalion. Is that right? Spot on. So there is demand for this kind of investment out there, Simon. Are you surprised? You're not particularly surprised that this issue has gone quite well. And remind us where they're going to be uh, listed, in which sector will they trade, and uh, who would we best compare them to? So Chrysalis is part of uh, what's known as the kind of growth capital subsector. So we, we tuck that away as, as a kind of uh, part of the private equity uh, universe, though they, they are slightly different uh, as discussed from most of the other listed private equity funds. But Shihalian, you're absolutely right, is doing a similar thing. And there are two other uh, investment companies also in that subsector, although they do have a different approach. And that's the Schroeder British Opportunities Investment Trust that listed last year. And that's a hybrid fund, so that will list in public and private companies, but they want to be in that growth capital space. And there's also Schroeder UK Public Private as well. So two Schroeder funds and Schroeder UK Public Private was the fund formerly known as the Woodford Patient Capital Fund. Uh, and again, that has this idea of, of backing, uh, backing private companies, albeit or historically it's been smaller, less developed private companies than those you might find in Chrysalis or Shehalian. And how do we explain the fact that Chrysalis at least... Well, it has now trading around par, but it has been trading at a significant premium, as has Shehalian, I think. Uh, so why are they trading this way while many of the other you know, conventional private equity trusts are still trading at a discount? Uh, some exceptions like uh, HG Capital, of course, but uh, what's the explanation for that, do you think? 
No, it's a very good question. And it's one I've heard asked by a number of people uh, who are involved in running listed private equity funds, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I think there are a number of factors here, not least of which is probably the performance record. I mean, Shehalin's a little bit different in as much as its free float is relatively limited. In other words, it's it's owned or it has been owned to date by a relatively concentrated list of institutional uh, shareholders, so there aren't that many shares uh, around. Crystal is very different. It's, it's further on in, in terms of its life, and the shareholder base is now much more diversified, but it's performed very well. So if you look at its share price performance over the last year, it's up 127% uh, in a total return basis, uh, and that is capital growth. In fact, it doesn't pay a dividend. And that kind of performance will attract uh, investors. But also, I think it's it's doing something that it's quite difficult to replicate as well. If you look at its list of um, private companies that it's back to date, it's very difficult to access those kind of companies. You can't go out and, and replicate that portfolio. And that would be true of Shihalin and, and it'd probably true of the other names as well, actually. So if you really want access to these high growth private companies, then you know you do have to look at uh, going down this route. Yes, I think that's a very fair point. And uh, of course, once you get to a certain size, once you get known, this is the point that the that the managers, Chris's, were making in the in when they were talking about the the placing, is that uh, when you get to a certain size and you've done a number of these deals, you do get into the kind of magic circle, if you like, of people who get offered these deals. A lot of them originate in in San Francisco, obviously, or in China or in Asia, and you've got to be in on the kind of in on the process to get a chance of uh, getting them in any kind of scale. So I think that is a fair point. Let's move on and talk about another fundraising. This is an IPO for Digital 9 Infrastructure, DGI9, which I think is the second trust we've seen come to the market uh, looking to invest in digital infrastructure. How have they got on? It was a decent IPO, to be honest. They raised £300 million, and that compares with £370 million that Cordiant Digital Infrastructure raised uh, in February. Um, So not quite to the same level, but still a pretty decent sized launch. Um, They're going to invest in a range of digital infrastructure assets, as its name would suggest. And in fact, their first acquisition will be Aqua Comms, a platform owning and operating uh, over 14,000 kilometres of transatlantic subsea fibre systems. Uh, which apparently is described as the very backbone of the internet. So again, you know, very interesting area of the marketplace. And we've seen this before when we've had certain uh, new asset classes kind of spring up. And then as people become familiar with them and they deliver in terms of their target returns, that we see more specialist products launched on the on the back of it. And clearly with Cordiant and now Digital9, they're building on the success that other infrastructure funds have seen over a number of years. Yes, I think it's fair to say there are quite a lot of cables and systems going across the Atlantic now. I seem to remember that's been a, an issue that has uh, people have come to raise money for a number of times over the last few years. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But obviously, there's an appetite for this one. It's a relatively new type of infrastructure fund, uh, but clearly there's a lot of appetite out there. Uh, 300 million, as you say, is a significant chunk, even in these days when there's been a lot of fundraising going on. And let's go on and compare that then to the Renewables Infrastructure Group, TRIG. And they are not doing an IPO because they're already listed. But what have they managed to raise? So they raised £240 million. Uh, they announced that this week through an initial uh, issue in their share issuance programme. 
uh, and they're going to use those proceeds to uh, reduce the amount drawn on their revolving credit facility and that will drop down to 135 million. So again, a familiar pattern that we've seen for a number of these infrastructure funds use their credit facility to make new investments and then come back to the marketplace and raise capital in order to pay that down. And in the case of Trig, as this particular investment company is known, they raised 200 million pounds back in December last year and actually 120 million in May of last year as well. So they seem to be pretty good at coming back to the marketplace about every six months or so. Okay, but I just double check on what the yield on that one is at the current share price and how does that compare with the others in that broad sector? I'm interested, obviously, because there's been a lot of talk about rising bond yields and so on. And, you know, some people call some of these infrastructure funds kind of bond proxies. And uh, you'd think if bond yields are rising, some of these trusts might be slightly adversely affected. But how have they been trading so far this year? I think you make a good point. I mean, just on the yield point, they're yielding on a historic basis um, about 5.6% at the moment. Uh, The average on those renewable energy infrastructure names is about 5.4% at the moment, so they're probably a little bit uh, ahead. But uh, no, you make a good point. So a number of them have seen their premiums eroded. I think we've talked about this before. We talked about Greencoat UK Wind, which has probably seen its premium drop down to about 6%. And indeed, Trig, so the Renewables Infrastructure Group, they similarly have seen their premium come down a little bit as well, though in their particular instance, obviously, they've been fundraising, you'd expect to see that around the time of fundraising. But it's one of the reasons I think why the investment company sector has probably lagged a little bit. Obviously, we talked about behind the UK market and the tilt from growth to value has been one factor. And obviously, the fact that uh, overseas has probably not been the place to be this year, but also the the renewable infrastructure or the infrastructure section in, in general has definitely been a bit of a laggard this year. And as you're right, as those premiums have been eroded. Something to keep an eye on then. Let's move on and then talk about a rather smaller entity. And this is Tufton Oceanic Assets, which has the splendid ticker of SHIP, S-H-I-P. What have they been up to? They've raised a little bit of money, I think. Yes, that's right. They announced a successful TAP issuance. They raised $15 million dollars. Um, I think they were looking to raise up to about $25 million, so a little bit less than perhaps they would have liked. But um, you're right, it's an investment company with a market cap uh, of just under about $250 million US. So $15 million uh, is not immaterial in that context. Um, and those new shares that will be issued will start trading on the 29th of March. But if you top that all up together, that comes to something like $850 million or so raised uh, this week alone. That's pretty good going, isn't it? How are we doing so far this quarter? I mean, I have the impression from all that we've been talking about that there's been quite a lot of money raised this this quarter, coming on top of quite a lot of money raised in the pre-Christmas period. So um, how does it compare to what we would normally expect in a normal year were we ever to see such a thing again? (laughs) Um, No, it's been a very good quarter. And in fact, Q4 of last year was also a very good quarter, but the the pattern has continued so far this year. Uh, So I don't have the numbers in front of me for the aggregate numbers for March so far. But you're absolutely right. It it feels instinctively like a very strong month and therefore a very strong start to the year, which is interesting because, as discussed, market conditions have been volatile. But it's worth noting that where the money has been raised, it's in these more low beta type offerings. So in other words, it's not that there's a lot of money flowing into equity type names. Invariably, it's asset classes such as infrastructure that offer attractive yields and should be less correlated to the, the ups and downs of the equity market. So now it's time to move on and talk about some results. Let's start with uh, one that was very much in the news last year, 
uh, has finally produced its annual results for the year ending in December. Uh, and this is Temple Bar, TMPL, which is now under new management, so to speak. The, at least the, uh, the portfolio is under new management, uh, following a rather interesting change last year. They produced some annual results, and I guess they should be looked at in two parts, Simon. They should. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the results are for the year to the end of December. And actually, on the face of it, you almost kind of wince reading the headline numbers because the NAV total return is down 28%. And that compares with a fall of 10% for the FTSE all share. But as you say, there was a, a change of manager. And in fact, the results are kind of broken to the first 10 months, uh, effectively. Uh, the, the change of manager was on about the 29th of October. So 91 fund managers that is the, the, the name of the fund manager, rather than there were 91 fund managers working on it. <laughs> but their NAV total return in those first 10 months was down 46%. But since the appointment of Ian Lance and Nick Purvis of RWC Asset Management in just those two months, so from the 30th of October to the end of the year, they are up 32%. And now, in fairness, the chairman in his statement did point out that if 91 had been responsible for the full year, they would have seen a bounce back in the last two months of the year. But it just shows that uh, investment timing is quite a large part of the story. Um, just to remind people, Temple Bars have been run on a number of years on a value tack, and that got them into difficulty uh, last year, particularly around the market sell-off of this time last year. But actually, and interestingly, that the board decided, although it decided to change manager, it decided to keep that value approach and so far, it's done very well as a result. I think we talked about it at the time and talked about the board going down the road less travelled at a time when um, the Vogue seemed to be to appoint uh, growth managers. We should say, actually, it's a UK equity play, this one, which is not entirely obvious from its name. But the names that worked for it were things like ITV, the Royal Mail Group, NatWest Group, BP, EasyJet and uh, RSA. So a lot of names that were kind of beaten up. And certainly in the manager's reports, it's Ian Lance and Nick Purvis. They're very positive on, on M&S and uh, WPP, Centrica, CK, Hutchinson. And in fact, on their commentary, they made the point that they believe that valuation extremes, i.e. the difference between growth stocks and value stocks, are so great that they lined it to the, the tech bubble of 99-2000, which I suspect some of us remember only too well. But bias to those valuation extremes, so a lot of emphasis on banks and energy. I think it's said at the time that it was a brave decision by the board to stick with the value approach, just because it was literally, when they made the decision, it was still before the big rotation really started in earnest, which was in the, uh, the last quarter of last year. So we have to give them credit for that, and indeed to the new managers. And uh, obviously the, the shareholders, if they've stuck with it through this period, will be um, at least very encouraged by what's happened so far. Uh, what's the yield and what's the how are the shares trading? I mean, they were on a big discount before. What are they doing now? Yeah, so they have been re-rated already, actually. It's quite interesting because it's still a relatively early period for this new management team, but they're probably trading around a 2-3% discount at the moment, and they've averaged 10% over the previous 12 months. In terms of the yield, that's actually quite important to note that. So, they have basically rebased the dividend. The dividend was reduced by 25%, um, and the board made that clear at the time of the change of manager that they were looking to do that. Um, so it worked out at 38.5p for 2020, whereas their earnings per share was actually down 76% to about 12.5p. So they did take a real hit in terms of the income last year. But it's also worth noting on Temple Bar, actually, they're one of the strongest performing investment trust companies so far this year. They're up 18% in share price terms year to date. 
Well, I can't think of a better example of the old truism that uh, everything comes round in the end. Maybe this is the start of a glorious period for value investment, as you say, that, as the managers point out, it's never been quite so extreme, at least as, as of the middle of last year. The disparity in valuations between so-called value stocks and growth stocks never been greater. So if you believe in mean reversion, the idea that what goes down will eventually come back into line with its long-term average, then maybe this is the dawn for value investment. Others, I think, at the moment are more sceptical about that. A very interesting issue and, of course, makes a big difference to the kind of returns you can achieve. Okay, so let's move on overseas now. The UK is market doing uh, relatively well, as we said. Let's talk about Japan. And Bailey Gifford Japan have produced their interim results. One of the longest serving investment trusts in the Japanese sector. I think probably the first, actually, in the sector, if I'm not mistaken. Not sure. Can't remember. You'll know, Simon, of course. (laughs) I don't, actually. Uh, I'll put my hand up there. But I will find out and let you know next week. But Bailey Gifford Japan had its interim results out for the six months to the end of February. A decent set of numbers. The NAV total return was up about 20% or so, and that compared with an 11% rise for its benchmark. In share price terms, even stronger, up 30% as the fund's rating moved from about a discount of 3% to a 5% premium. It's all about the stock selection, really. Uh, And as you might imagine, being a Bailey Gifford fund, there's an emphasis on growth companies. So names such as SoftBank, outsourcing, Sumitomo, metal mining, and Monoto RO performed very well for it. Also, gearing was a positive uh, in the period. Uh, And Matthew Brett, who's been the manager of this one, I think, for about the last three years or so, um, had some interesting commentary around some of those stocks, including a a new acquisition to this portfolio of Bridgestone. So it produces tyres. Perhaps a tyre producer or a tyre manufacturer is not one you naturally associate with a Bailey Gifford fund, but he made the point that tyres are shoes for cars, And regardless of whether the car is an electric vehicle or uh, internal combustion engine, it still needs tyres. That's a very good point you make there, Simon. And I can can remind you that the Bailey of Japan was in fact launched in December 1981, which was probably before you started working in the city. So I'll let you off that one. It was all part of that uh, 1980s big boom in Japan. And there were others, I'm sure, at the time, which whose names have long since passed into a black hole. But uh, anyway, so they've done particularly well over that period. They've been a very strong performer. Let's move on and talk about um, Henderson Eurotrust, HNE. They've also had some interim results, but for a slightly different period. That's right. Their interim results for the six months to the end of January this year. Again, yeah, a decent set of results. NAV total return uh, was up about 11%, and that compared with a 10% rise for the FTSE World Europe XUK index. In share price terms, up near about 14 15%. So Jamie Ross has been responsible for this one since October 2018. He's very much got a focus on growth, quality and and consistency. And uh, as one might expect, a number of strong performers in the portfolio. And there were obviously some things that didn't quite work out for him. But I think probably the most interesting aspect of his commentary around these results is how he's tilted from what he describes as the COVID winners He's been happy to take some profits on those, particularly as they approach the end of last year. And he's tilted the portfolio towards the reopeners. So these are companies that he sees as having uh, recovery potential. And he gave some examples of those, including uh, perhaps an obvious one, international airlines groups, so IAG, which, of course, we know in this country could for its ownership of British Airways. So he's got 28% uh, of the portfolio, or he did at the end of January, in these reopeners. 
although he made the point that the, the portfolio is very much still biased to growth stocks in general. So it might be worth just for the sake of listeners who are not too familiar with this sector. I mean, there is another Henderson European trust. Uh, what is the difference between them and do they do very different things? What's the rationale for that? In fact, Henderson or Janice Henderson, as we should call them, have three European uh, investment trusts. So there's the uh, Henderson Eurotrust that Jamie Ross is responsible for. Uh, and as discussed, that has a kind of more growth investment approach. And then there's the Henderson European Focus Fund, which is uh, John Bennett, a very experienced manager. And he would describe himself as style agnostic, but he's been quite happy to buy more value orientated stocks. So um, he's gone into banks and autos more recently. Um, but he's, he's looking to perform regardless of whichever style is in favour. And then finally, there's TR European Growth, so Ollie Beckett's Investment Trust, and that's very much mid and small cap. So just by an accident of, of, of history, really, that uh, Janice Henderson should end up with three investment trusts, that they all have their own distinct flavours to them. And which one has the bragging rights at the moment? I always like to ask this question. Of course, style will be a big factor in that. But which one has the bragging rights at the moment of those three, if we're going to include the small cap one as well? Well, uh, funnily enough, it is the mid and small cap fund, so TR European growth over five years. That's the strongest performance. It's up 133% in NAV total return terms. Uh, and in fact, it's done very well over the last year. So over the last 12 months, it's up 103%, though, as I think we were just discussing earlier, there's a number of investment trusts that have seen their returns double in the last year, because obviously the starting point was the idea pretty much of the marketplace. Uh, but TR European growth has done very well, but actually so too its stablemates. So if you look at Henderson uh, Eurotrust, it's up 99% over the last five years in any of the total return terms. Uh, and that compares with a 70% rise for the, the FTSE Europe ex-UK index. And uh, Henderson European focus uh, also up 78% over five years. So again, outperforming that uh, FTSE Europe ex-UK index. Let's move on and talk about India Capital Growth. They had their annual results, and we've talked before about what's been going on in India and the performance of some of the other trusts in that sector. What's the story with India Capital Growth? So India Capital Growth had its annual results out for the year to the end of December. NAV total return was up about 10% during that time, and that compares with 14% for its benchmark return, which is the BSE mid-cap index. But in share price terms, it was actually ahead of the benchmark. It was up 19%. And that reflects the fact that the discount narrowed from 20% to 14% during the year. Uh, interestingly, the, the portfolio turnover was elevated to 29%, obviously by its own standards, as the manager looked to rebalance the portfolio following uh, improvements to the investment process and also in order to capture the opportunities that arose from COVID-19 market disruption. Well, that obviously sounds like a good idea. Let's move on and talk about JP Morgan US Smaller Companies, JUSC. This, I imagine, has done pretty well as well, but how have they performed? So they announced their annual results again for the year to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of about 16%, and that was broadly in line with their benchmark. And in fact, in share price return terms, they were probably just a little bit behind that, about 15.5% as the discount just narrowed a little bit. But yes, I mean, it's um, experienced manager Don San Jose, who is responsible for this one. Um, he made the point in the, the manager's commentary that 
Um, an interesting year to be an active manager. I think we can all agree on that. But actually, the, the, the fund underperformed a little bit in the final quarter of last year. And that's something that we're hearing a lot from some of the managers of small cap funds, regardless of where they were, because particularly after the announcement that a vaccine had been successfully developed, uh, we did see some of um, what uh, this particular manager has described as low quality, high beta plays uh, leading the market. And if, uh, as is the case for many small cap managers, they have an emphasis on kind of quality names, quality growth names, then that makes it quite a tough environment for them to keep up with the marketplace. But basically, the fund was positive, uh, had positive sector allocation and also gearing was a positive during the year. Uh, And as I said, they performed broadly in line with their benchmark. And they have been issuing shares as well. So the shares have been trading well in any event. Yes, that's right. So, um, I mean, at at this moment in time, they're probably on a 2% premium or so. And actually, over the last 12 months, they've averaged a relatively small discount of about 4% or so. So that's enabled them to uh, issue shares. They issued uh, not too far off a million shares last year as well. But it's interesting, and it just shows how volatile ratings were last year. So they were managed to issue shares at a premium, obviously, to their NAV. But equally, they repurchased, they bought back nearly 400,000 shares at a weighted average discount of 12%. And one suspects that would have probably been about this time last year when the market was obviously swinging all over the place. So you could have made an NAV total return of 16% last year from that particular trust. It's obviously uh, okay, but not uh, compared to some. But let's go across to Schroeder Asian total return, uh, which obviously invests in Asia. They had annual results uh, as well. And uh, Asia was a better place to be, in fact, for, for them, I think. It was certainly a good set of results. So in their annual results, again, to the end of December, their NAV total return was up about 34%, and that compared with 19% for its reference index. In share price terms, even stronger, up 36%. So, I mean, things that worked for them last year, um, Taiwanese technology stocks, Chinese stock selection was positive, uh, and they also had a number of winners amongst their Australian stocks. But I think if I had to give an award this week for best uh, investment manager commentary on their results, I would award it to Robin Parbrook and King Fu Lee. They've been working together a number of years. They actually apologised at the end of their investment manager's uh, report for their verbosity because they left no stone unturned in terms of uh, providing detail, not just what happened last year, but going forward what they suspect might happen. And actually, it's a genuinely fascinating read, although it will take you some time to plough through it. But they made the point that they're avoiding electric vehicle stocks. They think there's a bubble there. They're avoiding Chinese emerging internet stocks on value grounds. They've got relatively cautious on the outlook for equity returns in Asia. And it's worth remembering, actually, with this particular investment trust that they can and do use hedges. So they do take out market protection. That worked for them in the first quarter of last year. They then removed it and geared up the trust to that recovery, which obviously worked well for them. But now they've built up some putts to give them, again, capital protection again. And they've also, as as mentioned, taken some profits on what they describe as frothy names. So a very experienced pair of investment managers. I think they're always fascinating what they have to say about the region uh, and clearly uh, very strong numbers for last year. Yes, I think it's fair to say, actually, now thinking back to it, I mean, I remember when I was researching a book I I wrote about Anthony Bolton at Fidelity, and I went back and looked at all his early... uh, and reports and so on. I mean, you, you were lucky to get half a page from the managers in those days. Uh, this is sort of 30 years ago uh, because they had different ownership structures. But now uh, it's all, always gone to the other extreme, as you say. People are writing long essays uh, about what they've been doing. In some cases, still in others, not so much. 
But I think on the whole, that's a positive. I mean, if you are a shareholder, you do want to read what the what the managers think in some depth about what they've been doing. And in this context, I'm not sure that less is more. I mean, you might think after you've read it that you probably might have that five minutes back again. But if you're taking a studious approach to your investment, I think it's all for the good. I mean, have you detected that uh, trend over time, Simon? You look at a lot of these things. Uh, is that a fair comment or not? It is absolutely a fair comment. And as someone who looks at what investment managers do for a living on a daily basis, I do appreciate that insight that they provide. Basically, market announcements come out at seven o'clock in the morning, an hour before the market opens. So we do have quite a few of these to plough through every day. So there are a number of occasions in any given week where you think they could have been possibly a little bit more succinct. I still have another two or three set of results to plough through. But uh, that was, that's just a great read. I think, I think it is very important. I think it's very important, particularly given that there has been a huge pickup uh, in interest in the sector from retail investors. And I think just saying we bought a couple of stocks and we sold a couple of stocks and this is how we did. I think you've got to, as an investment manager in this day and age, given the shareholder base, provide a far greater degree of insight. And to be fair, most do. And I think it's fair to say also that in, in, in a number of cases, I can think of uh, uh, quite a few examples where the managers do talk in, in sort of greater depth about the kind of industries in which they're investing as well as just the stocks. And that's a very useful kind of broad educational purpose, I think. I mean, if you read someone, I'm thinking like Ben Rogoff of Polar Capital Technology, I mean, he writes a lot about what's going on in the technology sector. It's not just about what he did that year. It's almost like he's kind of writing his report, as I hope he is doing for the board. But you can pick up quite a few interesting things about the sector as well as and give you some other ideas as well as uh, simply what he's done on the shareholders' behalf. So I do think on balance, it's a positive result, even if it means more work for you, Simon. Let's move on and talk about some private equity results. We've quite a few of these. Let's start off with uh, BMO Private Equity. They've had rather an eventful week, I think. They really have, yes. Yeah. So they announced their annual results to the end of December and a good set of results. The NAV total return was up about 23%. But what I think is particularly noteworthy uh, in, in this instance is that actually their NAV was up 26% in the final quarter. In other words, they were down in the first three quarters of the year. And in fact, their share price total return for the whole of 2020 was actually in negative territory. It was down 14% as their discount widened from 9% to 37%. Now, uh, what happened here? Well, obviously, the final quarter of last year uh, was a, a good period in general. We discussed that in terms of what happened in the markets. And obviously, some of that flowed through in terms of uh, the private equity funding, some of the, the comparable multiples that they used in terms of the valuations. But what they also benefited from were some realizations, including one that also got uh, announced this week. A company called Dotmatics was sold to uh, an outfit called Insightful Science. Uh, BMO Private Equity had a co-investment in that particular company. It was an investment led by Scottish Equity Partners. And BMO Private Equity saw a 38p uplift from that one holding uh, alone. So quite a significant investment for them. And they were obviously quite happy about that. I mean, it values uh, their position in about £38 million. And that compares with £10 million as at the end of September. So you can see a lot of value was generated from that one investment alone. But uh, in fairness to BMO Private Equity, it wasn't just a kind of one-card trick. Uh, there were a number of other things that kind of worked for them. Uh, and uh, the manager, Hamish, now is a very experienced private equity manager, made the point that actually the portfolio was quite exposed, uh, as indeed are a lot of private equity listed funds now, to the IT sector, healthcare, 
Farmer Biotech and Life Sciences in general, and clearly that was helpful in last year's environment. The other thing to note on BMO private equity is that it pays uh, a quarterly dividend, which is not an unimportant part of the story. And uh, last year they paid quarterly dividends of 16 spot 13p. So on a historic basis, their yield at the moment is not too far off 5%, 4.8% at the moment. And so presumably the market was quite impressed by these results, was it? What happened to the share price this week? Yeah, well, the share price, it did well this week because the news came out separately. So we knew about the uplift from that one particular investment uh, and the share price went better on the back of it. And then at the end of the week, we had the annual results and the share price, the last time I looked, was up about 5% uh, on that day alone. So that's obviously positive, though it's fair to say that the discount at which it finds itself is probably still, even despite those share price rises, still a little bit behind the, the average for its immediate peer group, which is probably about 16 17% at the moment. Okay, so let's go on and compare that then to, uh, not, not directly comparable, but another private equity trust. This is Princess Private Equity. They also produced the annual results for the year ended the 31st of December. And how did they do in comparison? I know they quote their results in different currency, but uh, how, how do they compare? In euros. Yes. How dare they? They quoted in euros. They had a total return of 10% uh, for last year, and that compares to a rise of 6% for the MSCI World Index in euros. Uh, and in share price terms, they were up uh, about 12%. So again, it's the exposure that this portfolio had to technology, healthcare and business services sectors that assisted performance. Uh, the dividend, again, is a part of um, this particular uh, investment trust story. So they paid out uh, a total dividend equivalent to 0.435 of a euro, which was equivalent to 3.5% of NAV. And actually, their intention is to distribute 5% of their opening NAV uh, going forward. It's interesting, we've seen a number of these listed private equity funds now announce their results for 2020. And one of the features is that they've all seen a reasonable degree of investment activity, i.e. they were able to sell stuff and they were able to invest in stuff, which, again, this time last year, uh, when the world appeared to be ending somewhat, um, it wasn't very clear that uh, listed private equity funds would fare particularly well. But they've all seemed to come through relatively well. In this particular period, Princess Private Equity made some new investments worth 65 million euros and actually had realisations of 178 million. Uh, so they saw net cash inflow in the period. It's worth mentioning as well that they are managed by Partners Group, which are a very large, respected Swiss specialist private equity investor. Hence the euros. Okay, we could have mentioned this earlier. We talked about uh, Shihalian in the context of the Chrysalis fundraising, uh, but it so happens that they've produced their annual results uh, for the year to the 31st of January 2021, and also talking further about the possibility of raising more money. Fill us in on the story with Shihalian then. Yep, so in that 12-month period to the end of January, their NAV was up 42%. In share price terms, the return was even stronger, up 48%. Um, and that snapshot of the portfolio at the end of January um, is interesting. So they were invested in 27 private companies. Uh, that stage, in fact, two private companies that have become public. So Airbnb, I'm sure people have heard of, and Affirm. Uh, but they were 87% invested uh, at that stage. So this uh, particular investment company was launched in March 2019. And the idea was that you know, within two years, there'd be two thirds invested. In fact, they're, they're ahead of that, they're nearly at 90%. Uh, and the investment manager, so Peter Singlehurst of Bailey Gifford, noted that really they've got limited scope for further new investment now. I mean, invariably what you find with these type of vehicles, they want to keep a little bit of dry powder 
in order to have follow-on investments. But that's one of the reasons why they are looking to do a C-share. And I think we've talked about this before. And indeed, they published a prospectus this week in connection with that C-share issue, which will close on the 21st of April. And they're targeting an issue in excess of 500 million new C-shares at $1 per share. Am I right in saying that that's a slightly longer period than you normally see with some of these fundraisings? Or is it because they are having to issue a prospectus and so on? I mean, we've seen some of the other fundraisings recently we've seen have gone through very quickly. Is there anything to be read in the fact they're taking a bit more time about it? There's a couple of things here. I think it's important to note that it's a C-share rather than just a placing. So obviously, when we talked about Chrysalis, for instance, that was a placing of shares at 205p per share. So that's existing ordinary shares. Um, I think with the Shehalian Fund, I think they've been quite clear that they want to create a separate pool of capital through the C-share, uh, which will be invested within a period of time. And then at some stage when that is fully invested or nearly fully invested, they will merge the two share classes together. And that's obviously to protect the existing ordinary shares that they don't get cash dragged, they don't get the returns diluted down by the fact that you've got this pool of capital to to invest. So given that it's a C-share, there will be a kind of greater leading time. And I, I think probably the other thing as well is that Bailey Gifford as a house, I think they're, they're always very keen, I think, to, to get these things right, that they're not in a, in a rush to go out and raise every last dollar, every last pound. It's very much we want the right structures in place and we want to do this in, in an orderly basis. And I think, clearly, as mentioned, they were 87% invested in this vehicle as at the end of January. Uh, they've clearly got a little bit more dry powder uh, to make new investments, but I think they will be happy with that timescale of this, you know, assuming it is successful, uh, of getting their hands on an extra pot of cash, basically, towards the end of April. I read it in the newspaper this morning, but I haven't had time to check it out, so I'm sure you'll be able to put me right on this, that they're not going to do an offer which private investors can access, which I think was unlike Chrysalis, who did actually seek to raise some money through intermediary offers and through primary bid. But Bailey Gifford are not going to do that. Is, is that right? Or did I misread that? I only skimmed the headline, I have to be honest. No, you, you, you skimmed correctly. That is correct. That is my understanding too. Uh, and I think they may have actually kind of stipulated a minimum investment size as well. But I think what you have to remember with this, when Shihan came to the market a few years ago, it was very much aimed at uh, institutional shareholders, invariably existing institutional shareholders of Bailey Gifford. And they were very keen that at that stage, it wasn't an investment vehicle that would attract retail money. Um, And I think that was reflective of the caution that they had for the strategy at that stage. I think they were very much minded to get it up and running, to get it invested, to kind of achieve proof of concept which I think, you know, two years down the track, and we've talked about the returns that it's generated in the last 12 months or the 12 months at the end of January, I think they're now confident to kind of widen out that shareholder base. But I think they've made the point that obviously a lot, not all, but a lot of the investment trusts in the Bailey Gifford stable invest in private companies. So retail investors can access some of these names through Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust or Bailey Gifford US Growth, uh, whereas I think they still see this as, you know, a higher risk type mandate and therefore more suitable for institutional shareholders. Now, in time, that may change again. They may change their view on it. But I think at, the, at this moment, they're just very wary of that. That's a fair point. I think that explains that a, a little bit. There's always occasionally people complaining about the fact they can't get access on the same terms as the professional institutional investors. And that's uh, been an issue obviously discussed recently in that review for the Treasury by Lord Hill, among other things. 
But any case, so we'll move on. We've had some results now from the property sector. Obviously, these are coming out a little bit later than most of the equity investment trusts. We're now approaching the end of the first quarter and we're getting uh, the sort of formal results for the uh, end of last year, 31st December. Let's start off with uh, an annual results, and that would be regional REIT, uh, RGL, regional REIT. How did they do in, in brief? In brief, they were down. They were down 12% in terms of their EPRA NTA, which is the kind of property equivalent of an NAV. What else can I tell you? Yes, in terms of the reduction in the portfolio itself, it was probably about 7% down. It's worth saying regional REIT. It's an interesting story in as much as it focuses, as the name would suggest, on property more in the regions, which they define to be outside of the M25, i.e. they don't really invest in London property. Um, And they're looking to really focus on what they describe as core regional offices. So they have got some exposure to industrial and retail holdings. It's the kind of smaller part of the portfolio. But they are looking to exit those and really just become a kind of office focused portfolio, which is interesting if you believe in the thesis that we are going to see the end of the office. I suspect they probably disagree with that. Um, It's worth keeping an eye on the rent collections as well. So as at the 12th of March, rent collections to the end of December last year amounted to 98%, which it would seem to me is not a bad effort given what we saw last year. Uh, And in terms of uh, dividends as well, obviously a key part of the property story, dividends of 6.4p were declared in respect of last year. That's down from 8.25p in 2019. That's not uncommon, but that uh, dividend cover was actually 102%. So in other words, the dividend that they did pay was covered by earnings during the year. Okay, so as you say, that's another what we might call a brave decision, or appears to be, but uh, one of the arguments for investing in investment trusts is always that you know, you're looking for trusts that do something which is slightly different from the pack and something which is specialised in that way. At some point in the cycle, they will do well, I imagine. But uh, it's not obvious at the moment that that's the place you want to be, but we can see how that uh, turns out. Let's talk then briefly. A couple of interims we've got. BMO Real Estate Investments. B-R-E-I and PRS REIT. Let's uh, quickly just cover those off. Yeah, very quickly. Um, so BMO Real Estates, it was the it was the second half of last year for the six months to the end of December. The NAV total return was 3%. Share price terms a lot better, 12%. Um, but then if you look at it, that was because the discount uh, went from 42% to 38%. In terms of the rent collection, they were ahead of expectations at about 95% and the collection rate for the uh, first quarter of this year is currently 90% and they expect the final rate to be at similar levels. Um, it's also worth noting as well that their two quarterly dividends for the first half of 2021 have been increased by 36% to 0.85p. So like a lot of these property funds, they they had to um, reduce their dividend last year, but they're now slowly rebuilding and the board will continue to keep a future level of dividends under review. PRS REIT is a slightly different story, this one. This focuses on newly built homes across towns and cities in England for rent. And in the six months, again, to the end of December, their NAV was up 1%. But it's really about the kind of rolling out these new rental homes. So the portfolio, they saw another over 1,000 new rental homes added to take them to just over 3,000. And they're looking to get that number to 5,000 new homes by early 2022. Basic earnings per share were 4.1p, and that was up 86%. So again, this is, is still this is a, a, a property play that um, has really seen quite a lot of growth in terms of its portfolio. 
Yes, it's an interesting one. I mentioned that one. I think the trend towards providing, you know, kind of quality rental properties, bespoke, if you like, quality rental properties in uh, in estates, not for sale. It's aimed at young professionals mostly. Uh, it's quite an important trend in the property market, and uh, one interesting one to see. Uh, watch, obviously, been a bit. Uh, distracted by the uh, pandemic. Let's move on then to Target Healthcare. REIT also had some interims. They do what their uh, name suggests. How have they been doing? So their NAV per share was up from 108p to 108.1p in that six-month period to the end of December. But in actual total return terms, they're up 3.3%. So uh, as you might expect, uh, the rent collection is, is not too bad at all. There are about 94% of rent collected and actually progress being made at the four homes that make up the majority of their rent arrears. Uh, and their dividends are up 0.6% in respect of that period to 3.36p, uh, which was about 79% covered by adjusted earnings. So just very quickly, let's just compare, if we can, the discounts on the on the four trusts we've just mentioned, all in different sectors. So I imagine there'll be quite a range between them. The general story seems to be some of them are on the, the worst affected are on the way back, but uh, I imagine they're still not uh, back anywhere near trading at par, but some of these specialist trusts may well be. That's right. So Target Healthcare is actually trading on a premium, uh, as it has been uh, on average over the last 12 months. It's on about a 4% premium. In the previous 12 months, it's uh, average a 2% premium. So seen as a pretty resilient area of the property market. Uh, We talked about regional REIT, that's on a 20% discount compared to an average of about 27% or so over the previous 12 months. And in terms of BMO real estate investments, that's a 27% discount at the moment, uh, though that has been wider and it's actually averaged 38% over the previous 12 months. Uh, and the last name that we talked about was the rental one, the PRS REIT. And that is trading on a 9% discount at the moment. So tighter than the kind of commercial funds. And actually on a historic basis, it's yielding 4.6%. So now finally, we can move on to, uh, we've talked about fundraising in the infrastructure space. We've had a couple of uh, annual results out from infrastructure trusts. And let's talk about them again, very briefly. Let's wrap it up. The story here, as you mentioned, is always about the yield as much as about you might uh, edge out a little bit of capital growth, but that's not the main purpose of these things. Let's start with BBGI Global Infrastructure. Ticker is BBGI for obvious reasons. How did they do in 2020? So in uh, the annual results at the end of December, the NAV was up 1.2%, plus they paid dividends uh, in line with their target of 7.18p. So it was, I think, what could be described as a solid set of results. Um, The portfolio performance and cash receipts uh, were ahead of the business plan uh, and asset availability 99.8%. That's important because this is essentially an availability-based infrastructure asset. So this differs from a number of its peers because as long as its assets are available for use, the investment company gets paid. So if you look at it, it's invested in bridges and roads, Education, health and justice, very much a flavour of the type of assets it's got in this portfolio. And in terms of the dividend, the cash dividend cover was just short of 1.3 times. And in fact, they've confirmed an increase of 2% for their dividend for 2021 of 7.33p. And they're looking to increase that to 7.48p for 2022. And that's another increase of 2%. And then we talk about International Public Partnerships, INPP, and they do what it says on the tin as well. They've had some annual results. How did they do? 
So their NEV was actually down last year from 150 spot 6p to 147 spot 1. And that was really a reflection of the impact of the pandemic, basically, and the impact of the pandemic on its revenues indirectly linked to usage. So this is the point that they are providing demand based uh, infrastructure assets in comparison with BBGI. The good news for investors is that they increased their dividend by 2.5% to 7.36p. And in fact, they reaffirmed their 2021 target at 7.55p. And in fact, uh, they're giving us some guidance for 2022 of 7.74p. So these dividends are all moving in the right direction. And the cash dividend cover was 1.2 times. So obviously a key part of the infrastructure story. And that does certainly seem to be moving in the right direction for them. Well, it clearly is part of the the story when you're prepared to put targets down to two significant figures, I would say. 7.74 is pretty precise, I have to say. Oh, 7.48. But these uh, infrastructure funds, we've seen a lot of fundraising, in uh, particularly in the renewable energy infrastructure, but these two also trade on a very handsome premium. So that must be dragging down the yield that shareholders are actually getting if they buy the shares today. Yep. So international public partnerships uh, probably trading on about a 12% premium or so. So that that's uh, come down a little bit. It's probably averaged a 16% premium over the previous 12 months. But on a historic basis, it's yielding 4.5%. Uh, BBGI, its yield is a little bit lower, 4.3% on a historic basis. But it's on a reasonable premium, actually, 26% premium. Uh, and that's just slightly below its 12-month average of 28% premium. And that's been the pattern for a number of years. I think BBGI uh, is regarded, uh, rightly or wrongly, as, as, as offering a safer form of infrastructure assets because of its emphasis on availability-based assets. Yes, indeed. And we might talk again in future about some of the ways that uh, these infrastructure trusts are valued and uh, what are the key factors that drive them. We might return to that subject in due course. So that's all we have time for this week. As I said last week, we are approaching the anniversary, first anniversary of this Investment Trust podcast. It's been uh, quite a year for us as well as for everybody who's investing in the market and for the managers of the trusts and the boards. So next week is obviously Easter weekend. We will be producing a podcast and uh, we'll be taking the opportunity to look back over the year as well as uh, talking about such news as comes out in the first four days of next week. Simon, I thank you for your time, as always, and we look forward to having that uh, discussion next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.